I'm Kay Koplovitz, and I'm an honorary uh, member of uh, the advisory board for the Common Good. I'm happy to welcome you here today uh, on behalf of Patricia Duff, who is traveling, uh, into their conversation with important leaders. Uh, and want to mention, first of all, a, a few people who have joined us today that we would like to call attention to. Uh, journalist Nancy Collins, our honorary advisory board member, David Frum. And VIPs Sally Menard, Rick Solomon, and Arun Sandarajan. Welcome. I know that uh, you'd agree that politics and policy are absolutely central uh, to maintaining a vibrant democracy, and also that the free exchange of ideas is essential in creating good policy uh, and, and important for politics. We offer important conversations uh, like the one we're having today at the Common Good because we believe these conversations are essential uh, to maintaining uh, our democracy. Perhaps most importantly, uh, we want to uh, honor the discussion to protect against the disinformation um, that is so unfortunately prevalent uh, in our society today. So we are the common good finding our common ground. So thank you so much for joining us today. But first of all, let me uh, introduce uh, our moderator and our uh, guest, Congresswoman Jane Harmon, an internationally recognized authority in U.S. and global security issues, foreign relations, and uh, policymaking. Among her many achievements, uh, Jane is a distinguished fellow and president emerita of the Wilson Center, um, and a very well-known international think tank. In 1992, she was elected to Congress for her first of nine terms and etched her reputation uh, for her wisdom and work in uh, our intelligence and national security policy issues. Uh, she is the author of a recently published book, Insanity Defense, which chronicles four administrations uh, that failed to confront some of our most important national security policy issues and what we can do with them. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and before we get started again, please let me introduce Representative Abigail Spanberger. Uh, she was elected to Congress uh, in 2018, flipping a swing district uh, in central Virginia. Uh, Spanberger has, has been uh, serving on the U.S. House Committees for Agriculture and Foreign Affairs and is a vice chair of the Bipartisan Problems Solvers Caucus, a very important initiative. She previously worked at the CIA uh, as an officer tasked with intelligence gathering on terrorism and nuclear proliferation. I'm sure she and Jane will have some interesting conversation on those topics. She is known as a leading moderate who has called for the Democrats to focus more on kitchen table issues. Um, she also recently uh, told the New York Times that voters did not elect President Biden to govern as FDR, but rather said that Biden was elected to the White House so we could be normal and stop the chaos. Are we doing that? I guess we'll get some answers to that question. Jane, I'm going to turn it over to you. All right. Well, thank you, Kay. And hello, everybody. I love participating in these conversations and occasionally interviewing folks and actually being interviewed myself. 
This is an aerobic interview. It is only 30 minutes long, and I'm going to go fast uh, for 20 minutes and then give you time to ask uh, questions of Abigail. Uh, let me explain that at an aerobic interview, you get smarter. You get more intellectually and politically fit. And I was just talking to Abigail before we started, and I said my you know, one of Jane's rules is exercise is even more important than sleep. And in a job like hers, I hope she's exercising because uh, it's a pretty rugged environment out there. So uh, you've been introduced, Abigail. I would just say that, you know, back in the day, even in the 2000s, I was still in Congress until 2011, uh, there were very few women with intelligence backgrounds. Uh, I basically learned mine on the job in Congress, although I had some background in defense issues, and I represented the Intelligence Satellite Center of, of California. But you learned yours in another job, and others, uh, a few other women in Congress who served with you did too. And so it's really exciting to me to see very sophisticated people on intelligence matters in Congress and also uh, oh, by the way, uh, heading things like the uh, the National Intelligence Directory, <laughs> the National Director of Intelligence is uh, is a, uh, a woman. And so good for you. Good on uh, our country needs all of you. A few questions. So, Abigail, you were very accomplished before running for Congress. Uh, what caused you to run for Congress? So for me, it really came down to the fact that my the entirety of my experience with CIA was focused on answering really tough questions and pushing information. I was a case officer, so I worked undercover for the entirety of my time with the agency. Um, I was out collecting intelligence, running large-scale programs, pushing information back to policymakers, back to the analysts who were putting out, you know, finished intelligence reports for the purpose of answering you know, really difficult questions. Where, what threats exist? Where might we be attacked? What are our vulnerabilities? Who are leading other nations in the world? What's their opinion of us? What's the status of the Iranian nuclear program kind of in the lead up to the JCPOA? Um, and I loved my job. It was incredible. It was an adventure. And I had left in 2014, kind of at, at a point in my career where I had done incredible things. I felt content um, and, and, and good about the ways that I had served my country and wanted to pivot back towards um, a community. I grew up where I currently represent. My husband and I are both from uh, the same area. When we were considering where we might go next with a CIA, you know, we were talking with our oldest daughter, who was five at the time, and we said, okay, should we bid on this place or this place? You know, a fantastic geography lesson from our perspective. And she said, well, what about Richmond? And we said, ah, ha, ha, no, you know, nobody, like, we're not ever going back to Richmond with mommy's job. And she said, but everyone we love lives in Richmond. Why wouldn't we go there? Which was kind of a moment for me to think long term, what do I want to be doing in 10, 15, 20 years? And I had grown up where service to country was pretty much, or community was the only mm -hmm. parameter. My father was a career federal agent. My mother was a nurse. I knew service in one aspect or another. Uh, and decided to move back home. I was working in the private sector, volunteering in a variety of different ways, focused on community. And after the 2016 election, uh, I was really rocked by that. I was rocked by the notion that, you know, facts, the sort of uh, information that I had collected in, in sometimes sort of questionable or quizzical or comical circumstances kind of seemed to be thrown out the window. Um, I was rocked by the idea that everything felt so partisan and divided um, and it, what really made me for the first time think that I could actually conceive of running for Congress was I was at a town hall for my predecessor, 
And he was speaking about the travel ban that had just been implemented by the uh, Trump administration and the things that he was saying about the travel ban. You know, it'll it'll help us in the counterterrorism fight. It's good for all these reasons. We have to do it to keep us safe. And from the actual like collection standpoint, like I knew that not only was he was what he was saying incorrect and bigoted and biased, but it actually would inhibit. Um, our intelligence gathering capabilities. And so there was such a lack of knowledge of the things he was talking about that were near and dear to my heart uh, that I, I very, you know, had a moment to say, oh my goodness, you know, this man with this elevated voice is really incorrect about something he's saying. Like, I would do a much better job in this conversation than he is. Um, and for me, that was really the first time that I considered running. Um, and then from there, it, it, you know, continued on and there were different choices that were made in early 2017, that that made me very motivated. And then ultimately, you know, my district hadn't, I'm a Democrat, my district hadn't elected a Democrat since uh, 68. Uh, but I, I knew the work that I would put in, I, I knew what I wanted as a voter, um, as someone who had grown up in this district, as someone who feels very connected to this district, even when I was living other places. Um, and so I decided that I wanted to at least bring my voice um, to the conversation, to the contest of that election, um, and, and then ultimately, um, you know, so so far I'm two for two with my elections. Well, brava, and I hope your daughter is applauding your choice. Uh, <laughs> I hope uh, it's a hard sell to kids when their mommy isn't home all the time, but she saw that in another venue. I want to turn to the economy because obviously you came home and you do understand the local economy. And uh, it was James Carville in my day who said it's the economy, stupid, um, which still I think rings true. Um, inflation is the big word right now, and it is affecting whether and how other legislation can pass the Congress. Uh, what do you see and, and what do you think you need to do, you personally as a member of Congress, uh, about this issue? I mean, first and foremost, and this feels really oversimplified, but we have to admit it's a problem. You know, I, I think in, in the early days, there was some, you know, we saw some in inflation with used cars and with lumber in, in kind of pockets of the economy. And there were real um, things we could point to that had caused those peaks and, and those, um, those price increases. But now that we've reached a place where there's, you know, in, inflation more or less across the board and people are feeling it, um, the, the most important thing to do is to affirm that, yes, we recognize it's a problem. Uh, that there's no singular issue that is indeed contributing to the entirety of the problem that we're facing, um, but that there are many different pieces of getting at that problem that we can. So we can talk about supply chain, which certainly in the early days of COVID, we saw the supply chain issues really like up close and personal when we're talking about can't we cannot buy masks, hospitals cannot buy gowns. Um, so supply chain issues. And then what me, what I and what I think the, the kind of party in Congress overall should be talking about is the things we're doing to get at supply chain issues, the things we are doing to impact inflation or the price of, of gas at the pump. Mm -hmm. uh, the bipartisan infrastructure investment and jobs bill has actually really incredible trucking provisions meant to get at some of the supply chain challenges we are facing 
because of truck driver shortages, because of limitations on truck driving parameters, be it those who move livestock, which is an area of particular interest for me um, as, as a member of the House Agriculture Committee, um, and the bill included legislation I've led related to kind of cutting through some of the red tape in the livestock um, movement and trucking mm -hmm. side of things. Um, but but then also training more truck drivers, uh, allowing for, for the expansion of a pilot program that allows 18 to 21 year olds to cross state lines in places where previously that wouldn't have been permitted. Um, you know, the list goes on and on of things that we are doing, none of which will instantly fix the problem. Um, because, you know, inflation doesn't start in a day and it doesn't end in a day, but efforts that we are actively undertaking because we acknowledge there's a problem and we are working to address it on behalf of the American people. Um, on the ground, I think we spent, and I say we as the sort of larger Democratic Party, too long kind of focused on, on the larger scale where we are with COVID, right? But the reality is that for people who are going to the grocery store or going to fill up their tank of gas, like that's the place where they feel it. For parents, like I have three school-aged children, two in elementary school, one in middle school, the anxiety that I feel about sending my children back into school, you know, which is a little bit uneasy. Um, I think we as a party sometimes can be so so kind of optimistic, and I am an eternal optimist about like we're moving in the right direction that we don't necessarily validate we're moving in the right direction, but it is still hard right now for you. And I hear that. And these are all the things I'm doing to try and get it those areas where it's hard. Uh, great answer. And uh, uh, two things. You said it's an aerobic workout, so I'm speaking quickly because yeah. I feel like I need to be like. <laughs> now we can do this. Uh, uh, first, first part of the answer is you as a problem solver had a major role with some Republicans in getting infrastructure point one or 1.0 passed and signed. It's now law. What minute are the funds going to start moving? And secondly, on infrastructure, uh, 2.0, uh, the second bill, um, I, I understand. We, I think most of this group understands all the procedural. Yeah. But are you explaining infrastructure 2.0 to your constituents in a way that they can understand it? Because part of the problem here has been messaging. Yes. So the first part with the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, that money will start flowing um, pending on the program that the dollars flow to. Um, and I've already received a lot of incoming outreach, which is so exciting. I've done a lot of outbound outreach, particularly to local Board of Supervisor members, county administrators, uh, to make sure that they know uh, you know, for example, for water projects, which water projects are going to be receiving just additional plus ups. So they apply to existing programs, which programs might be new. Um, and, and we're educating. And that's, again, a little bit more with the local communities, because they would ultimately be the ones who would be applying for those funds or engagement with the state where they might be the ones who are um, driving that. But the, the deployment of dollars, uh, it depends on the funds that they're flowing into. Um, in terms of the next bill, uh, this has been a tough one, because Frankly, you know, in the early days, there was discussion of these two bills and they're separate, but they're the same and they're linked, but they're not. Um, and it's a reconciliation bill. And then it was outrageously sort of incomprehensible dollar amounts. Am I talking about six trillion or three trillion or 1.75? Right. When at the end of the day, those same people who are stressed out because their kids are about to go back to school and they're worried about COVID and do we put them on the bus or do we drive them or do we have them in aftercare? Or do we not? You know, and oh my goodness, I think prices are kind of creeping up at the grocery store. 
and someone's on television arguing over three trillion or six trillion, like it's kind of a head exploding moment. And so on the ground in Virginia, particularly because we were having throughout the summer and into the fall, uh, you know, we're active on the politics side of it because we had a gubernatorial race. So much of the the sausage making was really, I think, actually um, aggravating to to many constituents. And and I heard it on the ground across the board, like get off television. Just tell me when you guys have a deal. I don't care about all of it. I don't want you to debate in public. Like those are the sorts of things I was actively hearing from constituents. Now, so explaining that what we voted on two weeks ago was not the $6 trillion bill, was not the $3 trillion bill. Um, You know, there's a discussion of is it paid for, is it not paid for? Um, The way that I have been explaining it to my uh, constituents is this bill, uh, what we passed in the House is a framework for the bill. I supported the bill because it has incredible provisions that will help the people I represent, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, uh, ensuring the refundability of the child tax credit, making major impacts in our fight against climate change. The list goes on. But we passed this bill, which is the next step in pushing it to the Senate. Then the Senate will make amendments and potentially significant changes to the bill. We're anticipating changes, how significant we'll see. Um, I tell my constituents that, indeed, I'm actually working with some Senate counterparts on some amendments that they'll be putting forward um, uh, relative to some things that I think are provisions missing from this bill. Um, And then ultimately, when the Senate comes to an agreement, after they do their amendment process, after they vote on the bill, then it will come back to us. And so then we will vote on another bill. I'll take another look at it at that point in time. though I assume that the provisions that garnered my support in the first place will remain. And then we will vote on that bill, which may be you know, 99% the same or 90 or 80 or 75 remains to be seen based on the actions of the Senate. And then it goes to the president's desk. So making sure that people know that even, you know, a much celebrated vote of two weeks ago still puts us two, four, six, eight weeks away from the bill potentially even coming back to the House. Well, uh, that aerobic dance had a lot of process in it. Yeah. Uh, I hope somebody, and I'm nominating you, can boil it down to three simple sentences about why we need it and what we need, and including yeah. the paid for. But I want to go on because we have about three minutes left to Intel. Of course I do. Uh, on my uh, on my watch, we had two massive intelligence failures. We actually had more, but the two that everybody understands were 9-11 and the National Intelligence Estimate on Iraq, on which I based my vote for uh, the war in Iraq. And I say all the time that the intel was wrong and I was wrong. You don't have to agree with me, but that is my view of it. And better intel would have, I think, caused many of us to see yep. this in light and done something uh, possibly different and better. And uh, so there. But moving on to let's go to Afghanistan, simple little problem like Afghanistan. I mean, this is on your watch. Yep. And uh, President Biden is talking about over the horizon uh, assets that we have so that we can know if ISIS or pick another terror group is ascending and training and possibly threatening us. I mean, that's an obvious concern to your constituents and to all the rest of us. So could you talk about that issue for a minute? Absolutely. So the the basic premise that we're continuing and that the intention is to continue over the horizon um, efforts to understand the threat, understand uh, potential, uh, you know, capacity and, and mitigate threats when necessary 
Um, that's not dissimilar and it, well, let me be very clear. It's, it is indeed what we are doing in other places. Um, and so given my, my background uh, before I ever came to Congress, I have a kind of a, a general working knowledge of the type of work that can be undertaken uh, to recognize threats over the horizon, if you will, to mitigate those threats as need be, um, and to certainly be prepared from a, from a counterterrorism standpoint. I think it gets at the, the larger question related to the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which, you know, ultimately um, I, I did support and, and notably was, was almost, you know, it was, uh, we were so far down the line in the intention and the movement towards a withdrawal based on the negotiations that had been done under the prior administration. Um, I think some of the, the, the finger pointing that has existed, and, and Jane, I want to thank you. I, I think what's important is for people to say, you know, sometimes we're wrong, sometimes we're right, sometimes it's any variation thereof. And I, I think that there's been an, an oversimplified um, blame related to what ha was a really challenging uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan in August. You know, there's 20 years worth of decision making that went into our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the kind of weakness of the Iraqi government and the Iraqi military, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I do hope that in the future we will have an expansive and extensive um, after action. And as we are um, kind of gearing up and pivoting towards or, you know, even investing more time, energy, resources into our over the horizon efforts focused on Afghanistan, that we will have a real earnest look at other places that utilize the same sort of operations, what those successes, challenges, or, or frankly, weaknesses um, have been that we've witnessed so far. So we can uh, mitigate against those, those risks um, and those weaknesses as we kind of put our eyes broadly and, and, and focused on Afghanistan. Well, just saying that every single member of Congress, except one in the House, Barbara Lee, uh, who did this for moral reasons, voted to authorize the military mission in Afghanistan uh, in 2001. The United States accomplished the military mission very quickly in 60 days. And something that I talk about extensively in my book is we had some better options after that. Right. And we also had some better options after, uh, heroically, we took down uh, Osama bin Laden uh, in the Obama administration. And we missed a bunch of opportunities, and then we ended up to with uh, what in August. Uh, so just saying, let, I, I promise two second question. Uh, I'm in California at the moment in my old congressional district looking at the Pacific Ocean and you're not. Uh, and in my, in the LA Times today is an op-ed with a great title. Can being a centrist mean anything now? So here you are, uh, problem caucus, uh, vice chair and, 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 and self-identified centrist in a, in a flip district. Uh, can it mean anything now? I mean, I think this boils down to the idea that, um, that you know, there's so many labels within the political sense right now on both sides of the aisle. Everybody has to be sort of bucketed in who they are and how they fit. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat because I believe in the policies and kind of the major pillars of the Democratic Party, which is also why I think that when explained when kind of dug into um, when, you know, whether we talk about something because it's an issue of principle or we talk about something because it's an economic priority, like I actually believe, perhaps correctly or incorrectly, naively or otherwise, that there will be other people who like the ideas and the things I advocate for, people who identify as independents or even people who identify as Republicans. I also think that the best policy that we can implement is policy where we build a broader coalition. The more people who supported legislation, 
the better and the less likely that legislation will become a you know political punching bag as we've unfortunately seen far too many pieces of legislation now i'm not of course naive to the fact that that is a a political reality outside of the policy um but you know i'm i'm super aggressive in terms of the things i care about related to you know issues of justice and and stamping out child poverty and access to nutrition um and climate change and and the, maybe the difference that kind of casts me in this centrist or moderate role is that when i talk about climate change i'm talking about the national security implication i'm talking about the healthcare implication i'm talking about the implication for a, a state like mine where tourism is our number 2 industry and agriculture is our number 1 industry and forestry is our number 3 like the top 3 private sector industries in our state are impacted aggressively by the impacts of climate change. So this is an economic issue. It matters to our farmers and producers. The US Navy, of course, we've got uh the the Norfolk Naval Base in Virginia. The U Navy says rising sea levels is a national security threat. Like all of these things, whatever whatever element might pull somebody to the table to care about, think about, engage with um issues related to in this example combating climate change, I'll make it. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Let me let me Stop you because I know there are questions, but I'll just say that uh, centrists can be passionate too, and Republicans can be passionate. And you would not have been elected in the seventh district if Republicans hadn't crossed over to vote for you. Same applied to me back in the day. And uh, brava to you. I mean, Congress is lucky to have you. And don't answer this because just smile because we are now going to audience questions. And someone else is. Thank you okay. so much. Yes. Great, great conversation, uh, both of you. Let's turn over to a few questions from, first of all, uh, from David Frum, uh, who's an author and a political analyst and a member of our advisory board for Congress. Thank you, thank you, Congress. Thank you, thank you, Congresswoman. Um, for all the polarization in Washington, there's one area where the two parties agree, unfortunately, um, and that is on the issue of trade. Both parties have, have moved in an ever more protectionist direction, and the area of continuity. between president biden and president trump that is strongest is the maintenance of trade barriers not only against china but against many allies where do you stand on this are there any prospects for any kind of free trade coalition in congress that's a that's a very good question um in terms of an actual coalition i think the closest that we would get at this point would be the the new dem coalition uh which has you know been around for quite some time but across the board a uh, you know, pretty positively inclined and focused on the importance and value of free trade um i think we saw some positive engagements with the the passage of the implementing documents for USMCA that we passed i guess that would have been late 2019 uh there were some fits and starts but ultimately a kind of broad uh spectrum of us really tried to make sure that we were garnering uh the support necessary uh in that case on the democratic side of the aisle to get those implementing documents across the the finish line and and for me again it was the the impact on central virginia particularly our cattlemen and our dairy uh and the real benefits we saw purposeful efforts undertaken to ensure we're protecting american workers as well um and so to some degree i think trade and free trade and and a focus on protectionism has been, become a, a bit of a trades become a punching bag issue and protectionism has been um uh reduced down to 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 kind of just being that's how we focus on us but you know from a larger standpoint if we want to ensure that we are not only economically um strengthened and that's you know outbound exports lots of people want to buy lots of american products how do we make that happen how do we ensure that they're um desired throughout the world but also 
there's a real value, and I'll, I'll go to the national security side, there's a real value in our economic engagement with countries throughout the world, particularly countries where some economic instability has allowed them to either falter in their path towards democratic values or has allowed um, the outside voice, outsized influence of other voices, uh, you know, be they terrorist oriented, authoritarian oriented, et cetera, to, to rise up and have a little bit more power. Um, and so I was recently on a trip to uh, Bangkok with a couple members of the, uh, the Asia subcommittee on the foreign affairs uh, committee. And one of the things that we were really kind of focused on was how do we strengthen, uh, we went to Bangkok and, and Jakarta, how do we strengthen our trade relationships with both nations? Uh, because not only is it important from an economic standpoint, but geopolitically, it's actually quite valuable. Um, and, and so I think that it becomes, and we saw this in the 2016 election in particular, frankly, on both sides of the aisle, where trade was vilified as this kind of thing that just destroys um, uh, jobs and, and creates havoc. But indeed, you know, trade is really valuable because if we're going to be proud of American products and we're going to be focused on growing the market for, again, I'll focus on American cattle. You know, Virginia cattle has a great market uh, in, in Canada, for example, and making it easier for cattlemen from my state to be able to export their cows there instead of Iowa or other places westward um, it is, is of great benefit. Um, I think there's going to continue to be the, the political sense that it's a really good punching bag. Um, but really, you know, anything that can be kind of oversimplified and vilified, people will utilize it as a punching bag because it's reductive and easy, um, which just makes it a little bit more harder for those of us who recognize the value to be eyes wide open about the, the importance, the value of trade, also some of the limiting factors and things we can protect against. And I think USMCA is a good example of that, where there were concerns related to prescription drug provisions, where there were concerns related to you know, protecting U.S. workers, we were able to, because the focus was let's get to yes, we were able to actually put in place um, pretty pretty good standards where ultimately some Democrats who've never voted for a trade deal in their lives and you know, were saying before the caucus, I can't believe I'm about to vote for it, but we got it to a good place and we saw broad bipartisan support on both sides of the aisle, with, of course, outliers on either side as well. So I'm going to move to the last question from Bob Wyman, uh, and sort of our last lightning round question. Bob? Are you there? Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy has made much of your statement that nobody elected Joe Biden to be FDR. They elected him to be normal and stopped chaos. So the question really is, uh, what did you mean by that? And what can you say about Kevin McCarthy's interpretation of the statement? I suspect uh, that you probably think he's misinterpreted things a bit. I mean, I think Kevin McCarthy at this point will just utilize anything that he can in some effort to divide um, the Democratic Party to cast some stones. Um, you know, not everybody liked my statement on my side of the aisle, um, which, you know, I'm is 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 fine. Everybody's entitled to an opinion. So I think there's probably value, uh, given that I do have one of the swingiest districts in the country um, in one of the most competitive races coming up. I think there was uh, some political um, inclinations in using my name so much that, um, you know, he thought he might be able to 
gin up some anger against me. Um, and, and those are the only motivations because I have yet to see him do anything that isn't wholly politically motivated. So that's where I kind of assume his head is. But in, in terms of my comments, you know, and, and I, I said this to the president and to the folks over at the White House as well, the idea that someone is elected to restore, restore a sense of normalcy and to kind of quiet people's anxiety in their heart and stop the chaos in the world is not saying that I think that he was elected for a lesser than reason, right? That in and of itself at a time of incredible division and hyperpolarization and families not getting together at holidays, first because of political divisions, then because of a global pandemic, and now because of both, um, the idea that he would be elected to bring, you know, some sense of normalcy back to quiet the the alarm and the anxiety and the hurt that exists for parents who are worried about their kids or loved ones who are fighting over politics or, you know, bring people kind of back to the discussion of why a vaccine is actually a really good thing meant to help people based in science and developed by people who've devoted their lives to kind of making things better being able to reel people back into a space where it's not so chaotic and angry and divided uh, is in and of itself, I think, an extraordinary mandate. Um, and that's not to say that he didn't advocate for really important policies, um, because he did, and I've supported them and, you know, notably voted to advance both of them. Um, but, but the actual kind of feel of what it was that at least in central Virginia, what I'm hearing from voters be they Republicans who voted for him, independents who voted for him, or the broad swath of Democrats who voted for him, is that when they cast that ballot, they weren't thinking, oh, you know, this is the path towards insert policy. And, and maybe other places that's the case. But they were, uh, you know, squiggling in that, that, that bubble because they wanted to be able to turn away from the news or Twitter for more than five hours and not worry that something was imploding or exploding. Um, and restoring all that had been broken in, in, you know, as I would assess it, um, all that had been degraded with federal agencies, all that had been riled up, like that in and of itself is an incredible mandate. And just a little bit of humor, when um, the president and I had a conversation with him and he, the cloakroom connected us, they said, you know, Representative Spamberger, please hold for the president, clicks on, they say, President Biden, Representative, or, you know, Mr. President uh, Spamberger is holding and I say, I hear a voice say, hello, Abigail, this is President Roosevelt. And I, uh, <laughs> my face was just, and I said, hello, Mr. President. And he lets out the most joyful belly laugh that you could ever imagine as I want to kind of pick myself up off the floor. And he says, oh, Abigail, I'm sure I'm glad you have a great sense of humor. To which I'm like, again, my skin is crawling and I'm saying, oh, Mr. President, I'm glad you have a good sense of humor. Um, so, you know, I think the the mandate at times for what we need from a president, um, you know, we've needed presidents to bring us together. We've needed presidents to pivot us towards the future. Um, you know, I'm proud of the policy that we've voted at least through the House. I'm really proud of the policy American Rescue Plan bipartisan infrastructure bill that we've actually gotten across the finish line, in addition to far, you know, smaller targeted piece of legislation that don't get that much media oxygen. Um, I'm really proud of what we have done and accomplished with this president. But at the end of the day, you know, when I think, again, I'll speak for the people that I represent and the voices I'm hearing, when people said, yes, that's my choice, it was so they could take a deep breath and believe that the future kind of would be calmer and would be 
on a path towards restoring all that causes them grief and, and chaos kind of uh, emotionally and in the real world. Um, and that's not to the exclusion of good policy, uh, but certainly I do think that the mandate might have been different um, from 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 pre predecessors uh, in this particular case, FDR. I want to thank uh, Abigail for your joining us today and uh, hearing your voice and Jane for asking the questions and carrying the uh, conversation today. Thank you very much for joining us. I would like to mention before we leave that uh, next Thursday, uh, there will be an event uh, for the common good on the future of news and in the post-truth world, uh, which I think a lot of us uh, would have opinions about. Uh, so join us, please. And also, may I say, it's Giving Tuesday Day. So as a member of the advisory board of the common good, uh, if you haven't given yet to the common good for this year, chip in and uh, keep our conversations flowing. Thank you all for joining us uh, today. And uh, may you have a good week. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And it's an honor to be with such extraordinary uh, women who are hosting today. Thank you so much.